Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hey guys, welcome to this mini episode. Uh, this is one of six uh, little mini episodes I'm going to be rolling out with uh, author Guy Winch, and today's topic is rumination. And uh, I'm just going to read uh, an email I got from somebody, and then one or two surveys, and um, and a, that uh, those tips from from uh, Guy. Um, and I believe I mentioned in the interview uh, itself that he has a book out there called Emotional First Aid. Um, I want to read an email I got from a listener named Dan, and he writes, Hardly anyone knows that I have a mental health disorder. Technically, I haven't been diagnosed with anything. This is mainly because I don't see the point. If I'm diagnosed with, say, generalized anxiety disorder, what changes? Nothing. My life stays the same. The only difference is now I'd be able to say, I have generalized anxiety disorder, which I wouldn't say anyway, for the very same reason that hardly anyone knows I have a mental health disorder now. I'm too scared to admit it. I know, I know, I shouldn't be. But let's face it, mental illness carries a huge stigma. People think we're violent, dangerous individuals that will hurt them, when in fact, most of us are more likely to hurt ourselves. Besides, out of the handful of people I have told, the majority responded with something along the lines of, just pull yourself together, or just stop being anxious, or my favorite one, get over it. You're just shy. Well, to that I say, do you get daily anxiety attacks from being just shy? Do you get scared to eat in public if you're just shy? Do you get worried about taking public transport if you're just shy? If you're just shy, do you go through five years of high school without talking to anyone outside your small social circle? When you're just shy, do you criticize yourself for every single mistake you make? If you're just shy, do you lie in bed at night and think about something you said to someone two months ago, wishing you could turn back time and say something different? If you're just shy, do you get paranoid that everyone you talk to hates you? If you're just shy, 
Do you have an irrational fear that everyone is out to hurt you? If you're just shy, do you force yourself to take antidepressants? If you're just shy, do you go to support groups every fortnight and counseling every week? If you were just shy, you wouldn't tell people you had a mental disorder. Nobody wants to have a mental health disorder. It's very debilitating. You can't even share your problem with some people. They just respond with something along the lines of, get over it, you're just shy. Thank you for that, Dan. And I want to read this first. This is from the Shame and Secret survey. I'm sorry, this is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, filled out by um, a woman who calls herself PMS Princess. Uh, she's straight in her 30s. Uh, she qualifies being straight, uh, but I love flirting with other women. I just don't want to sleep with them. Uh, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? I would like them to say I was an honest, good person. I want them to say I made them laugh and take life less seriously. I want them to say I was a good mom, friend, and wife. How does writing that make you feel? I'm sad because I wrote about being a mom last. I'm also relieved to know that I'm an honest and good person on the outside. I do make people laugh, but because I know they can't understand how I really feel. Making it funny lets me get it out without making them uncomfortable. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I would use it to observe my mom. She was always put her happiness last, and I want to know why. I want to know what caused her to be okay with being with a man like my stepfather and staying with him for over 30 years. Then I would want to watch myself as a parent. I'd like to know if I suck at parenting as much as I think I do. By the way, I think anyone that questions whether or not they suck as a parent is usually not a sucky parent. Um, I'd like to know if I suck as a parent as much as I think I do and find ways to behave like other parents do. I'm supposed to feel a motherly instinct about being a parent, but I don't. I feel resentful sometimes. I feel like I adopted this beautiful little girl and I can't show her the love and affection she needs because it makes me uncomfortable. I'm supposed to feel incredibly lucky about my life as it is now, but I don't. I feel like I don't deserve what I have. I've been through so much in my life, and I've always fought so hard for every little thing. But now I have everything I've ever wanted, the perfect husband, the beautiful child, a house full of animals, an amazing home, and a great job. I feel like the other shoe will drop at any moment, and I will be back to struggling to survive. I don't think I'm strong enough to go through it again, but I think about it happening constantly. I think my husband will die, or my daughter will go live with her father, and like him more. I fear my husband will lose his job and I'll be poor again. I make myself sick and feel incredibly guilty just thinking about how much I love having money. I fear my husband will realize who I really am and leave me. How does it make you feel to write this out? It makes me really sad and disappointed in myself. Why can't I see how they really feel about me? Why am I so locked up in my mind, always worried about whether or not other people like me? Why can't I hug my daughter as much as she'd like me to? I feel like you're going to read this on the podcast and tell the listeners that I am, I am an idiot for thinking something is wrong with me. I hate how much I care about whether or not other people think I'm crazy. I'm afraid to go to a therapist because they will tell me I'm normal and then I will have to accept the way I feel as normal and just put on my big girl panties and suck it up. By the way, there's a sale on big girl panties this weekend. Um, before I continue with the rest of this, I just want to say um, there's a difference between just because what you are experiencing is common, that doesn't mean that it's something that you should just get over. You know, that's like saying, well, cancer's common. <laughs> you 
just get over it. No, it's, it's, yeah, I just said what you thought I was going to say. But I mean it. I fucking mean it. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? I do. I don't know anyone else like me except my older sister, and even she doesn't understand sometimes. I feel like one day I will realize that I've been normal all along, and I'm just too stupid to realize it. I fear that no one will ever understand how I feel, and they will continue to dismiss it as PMS. It's not normal to go two years without sleeping. It's not normal to take antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds to get through the day. It's not normal to feel the insurmountable rage I feel when I'm off my meds. I'm abnormal because I feel the rage, but no one can see it on the outside. No one has any idea. No one can hear my mind racing. I'm totally and completely, quote, normal on the outside. It is abnormal to know exactly when I'm going to be angry, have anxiety, insomnia, feel pain, and where the pain will be. All based on my menstrual cycle. How fucking crazy is that? Well, I'm going to have to say that this is the first time I can say I don't know how you feel because I don't know what it's like to to have it related to a menstrual cycle, but I do know what it feels like to have rage, to not know when I'm going to have anxiety or insomnia. Um, would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? It does make me feel better. I joined a support group for PMDD, which is premenstrual uh dysphoric disorder about six months ago and it has changed my life other women moms wives go through the same exact thing every single month i've spent the last 20 something years yearning for someone to understand it is liberating to know i'm not alone now if only the doctors believed me yeah i sometimes just want to shake my fist in the air at uh, medicine especially western medicine there just seems to be this this throwing of pills and hey pills save my life in many ways but they're not they're not the only answer to things and sometimes um you know i think i think there's too much medication or there's just not enough focus just not enough caring about their job when they do i mean they do they know what it's like to to you know just have that can't get out of bed or everything is just gray and the thing they're thinking about changing is going to take three months of patience for you to wait for this new thing to 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 kick in, and maybe I'm maybe I'm trying to read their mind, but sometimes it just feels like um, like they don't like they don't understand. Like psychiatrists don't. I wish psychiatrists could empathize, empathize as well as uh, as therapists and social workers. Um, and I say that not really even fully knowing what the difference is between a therapist and a social worker. And somebody wrote an article that I read and posted on the website, and I still don't really understand. Uh, all right, I'm going to read um, one more survey about rumination. This one could either be rumination or failure, but um, this is from the Shame and Secret survey. And, and a big hug to... Um, to, uh, did she call herself? Yeah, PMS Princess. Listen to the uh, episode with listener Amelia. She also um, has a, kind of a similar similar issue. Might even be the exact same thing, I'm not sure. Anyway, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by uh, a guy who 
uh, calls himself John Stevens, and then in parentheses, that's not my real name. He's straight, in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional uh, environment. He, he writes, I lived with my mother and my brother when I was younger. When I was in fourth grade, my mother and her boyfriend had a huge, a huge fight, and me and my brother were sent to live with one of our aunts. I enjoyed living with my aunt, but years later, my mother wanted me back. I did not want to live with my mother because I loved my situation with my aunt and uncle. My mother forced me to live with her to start seventh grade, and this caused a huge rift in the family, as well as leading me to have a great unhappiness, perhaps hatred, for my mother. To offset my bad feelings for her, she spoiled me in an attempt to buy my love. This has perhaps continued into my adult life as my living situation and thought processes are not as mature as what they should be for a 31-year-old. This is also quite shameful, and I blame her for this, but also realize I must take some of the blame because it is my life. This causes the suicidal thoughts to persist as well. Um, he's never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. Um, I don't know. It, it, it sounds like you, from what you described, you were emotionally neglected, um, maybe by your mom. But anyway, uh, continuing, deepest, darkest thoughts. I think about suicide every day. I feel like I'm a failure at life. And when looking at my friends and family, I wonder how things could have gotten so far off track. I have an English degree from a good university, but spent most of my time in college partying and therefore not doing well in my classes. I'm 31 and recently came back from overseas. I'm unsure of what to do with myself and what job I can get in the U.S. I now live with my mother in the middle of nowhere, which only increases my feelings of failure. I've never been in a fight in my entire life, though I've been picked on and had many opportunities to defend myself. My mother always told me not to do that, and I listened to her. This was a huge mistake by her telling me this and by me in listening to her. Because of this, I now walk around with an extreme rage and constantly think about all the times that I was picked on when I was a child and did nothing in return. I feel I may explode and kill someone because of this, but can't be sure. For those listeners out there who are parents, I would hope that you tell your children to defend themselves when they're at school. I hate my mother for this parenting strategy more than anything else. She did many things correctly as a parent, but this was a huge mistake. Boy, that sounds like the definition of, of rumination uh, there. So I, I, I really hope um, he listens to this, to this mini episode. Deepest, darkest secrets. When I was in high school, I was at a party smoking marijuana through a bong with some friends and some other people I didn't know as well. For some reason, I decided to blow into the bong, which caused all the water and some of the weed to be pushed out uh, of the bong onto the floor. As everyone else there was high, they couldn't believe what I was doing and proceeded to laugh and mock me tremendously by the situation. I was incredibly embarrassed and spent the rest of the night crying slightly to myself and contemplating suicide. If my friend, who owned the house where the party was happening, had had a gun, I would have used it to kill myself. There is no doubt in my mind. Now, although I am not famous, I have lived with the fear of becoming famous because of this situation because I wouldn't want someone who was there to make this situation public. I've secretly been hoping that everyone who knows about this event dies, so I'm the only one in the world who was there. Of course, maybe it's not that big of a deal to anyone else, but to me, it is absolutely the worst thing I've ever done in my life, and I would give anything to erase it from my past. I still think about it, and it is incredibly shameful. That may take the cake for the most unnecessary amount of anguish and worry over anything of all the things that I've read in in this podcast 
I mean, that should be something that, that that somebody could laugh about, you know, to themselves. And so I, I yeah, this is the very definition of, uh, of rumination uh, to me. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Most of my sexual fantasies have taken place. However, I constantly look at porn. Thank you, Internet. And masturbate several times a day, four to seven times per day on average. That to me sounds uh, a, a bit excessive, like they're... Uh, like it's a drug. Um, or get on my soapbox support group. Uh, I try to eat or talk to a therapist because that's um, masturbation is great, but not in the place of uh, dealing with our feelings. I try to ease myself off the porn by fantasizing about actual women I know and find attractive instead of those I see on screen. This works sometimes and sometimes not. My level of porn consumption is quite unusual and slightly shameful as well. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? I hope more than anything to find a job. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I hope uh, more than anything to find a job that I'm passionate about. I've been searching for this for my entire life and have been unable to find it. I think sometimes about being married and having kids, but then I wonder if I will be a good father since my father was not there and I didn't really get along with my mother's boyfriend. Still, although I'm not sure if I would be a good father... I hope to one day have a secure job that I enjoy and a wife that I love. You know, my hope for you is that you become comfortable with yourself before you get into a relationship because, man, it's like no matter how perfect that partner is for us, if we're full of shame, self-hatred, um, it's it's really hard for anybody else uh, to love us. And we usually wind, and I'm talking about myself here, we usually wind up being um the least nice to those people that love us um love us the most and fortunately i'm not that guy anymore with my wife but i was for many years and um if i had never gotten help um i i was a type of guy that i would advise myself from the podcast to to a woman turn and run from that fucking guy because he is gonna drag you down with him um so i'm not i'm not um i'm not putting you down by saying that at all i'm i'm encouraging you to um to get some help because it sounds like you're in a huge amount of pain and anguish uh, have you shared these things with others? I have not shared any of this with anyone else. I become emotional with sadness and rage when I think about any of these things. I'm also ashamed of all of them. The only reason I'm sharing them here is because this is anonymous, which I thank you for. And I thank you for, for sharing it. How do you feel after writing this down? It's been quite therapeutic, I must say. I feel better, but again, the thoughts will come back, as will the emotions. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you are a parent, please teach your children to defend themselves at school so they won't have terrible experiences at school as I did. For anyone else who has had similar experiences, just know that someone else has been there. We struggle together in our search for solace. Thank you so much for that, and I'm sending you a big hug. And um, God, I, wonder if, I wonder if you're dealing with uh, PTSD from, from being bullied. Um, Let's see. All right, I'm going to uh, play that uh, the thing on on rumination now with uh, with Guy Winch, and then I have a message for you at the end. Talk to you in a little bit. I'm here with uh, Guy Winch, who doesn't go by Doctor. Uh, I notice, even though he's a PhD, I kind of I find that kind of adorable. 
<laughs> that uh, that you don't uh, flaunt that. You know, nothing against PhDs that do call themselves doctors. I would if I had a PhD, but I, I don't know. I find something kind of adorably humble about uh, a PhD that that doesn't uh, put doctor on their email. I think that started when I was getting my PhD and my uh, very old grandfather at the time said, you know, that's nice, but you could do something useful like be an electrician. <laughs> and I thought, aha, uh -huh, okay. <laughs> Maybe not as impressive as I once thought. <laughs> uh, you're originally from Israel. You've been here 20 years. Um, you're, you got your PhD in psychology. Was there a... Uh, clinical psychology. Clinical yeah. psychology. Um, how does clinical psychology differ from um, other types of psychology? Well, when I got my degree, the, it was really split into the therapy side and the science side. So we had classes, we did research, but we had many, many hours of uh, therapy with supervision. We had a clinic that was built just for that program where we saw patients and got a lot of supervision. So our clinical skills were very um, significant. It's a big uh, part of the program. And what is the other, the, the non-clinical, what is the, how is that referred to? Is just research psychologist? Or? It could be a developmental psychologist, experimental psychologist, community psychologist. There's, there are many kinds. Organizational, okay. yeah. Uh, but I would imagine the, the most common ones that we come into contact with seem to be clinical psychologists. Right. So therapists would be clinical psychologists, perhaps uh, counseling psychologists. Licensing t is, tends to be generic. So uh, even if you got trained as an experimental psychologist and your only contact with patients was when you put rats through a maze, the licensing is the same and you can still do therapy. Hopefully you won't, but you, you might. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk about you. You have a book out uh, and, and remind me of the title of it again. The title of the book is Emotional First Aid. The subtitle is Practical Strategies for Treating Rejection, Failure, Guilt, and Other Everyday Psychological Injuries. I read a piece that you wrote on rumination, um, and you have tips on how to deal with, uh, with rumination. Um, is there a specific type of um, childhood trauma, injury, issue that leads one to being more prone to having issues with rumination? I think people who have childhood trauma might be more prone to rumination because you're used to uh, thinking about, you know, things and reflecting on things as children since we are pretty powerless. All you can do really is reflect on what happens to you and what is happening to you. But rumination is also habitual. In other words, it's possible to get into the habit of ruminating and then get stuck in that habit of ruminating. I know nothing about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I uh, had a QEEG uh, done on my brain, and the, um, the guy that did it looked at it and he said, oh, yeah, this area of your brain is has much higher activity than normal. And that's generally where people ruminate. And I was like, oh, my God, everything he said, reading my brain, he didn't know me personally. And everything he said from reading the patterns of my brain waves were were dead on, dead on. So I'm a big believer that that this this stuff is real. I mean, clearly, I wouldn't be doing the podcast if I didn't think this stuff is real. But I, I believe that it's it's connected to science. I think a lot of people shy away from going into this stuff because they think, oh, it's just me feeling sorry for myself. It's just me looking for an excuse to be sad or to, you know, blame my parents for something. And uh, 
I think that, that a lot of people get stuck there because they think it's about blaming someone else instead of processing the stuff and moving forward. You know, I think once you get into therapy, once you realize what your injuries and traumas and stuff are, then the responsibility is on you to stop blaming other people and to get into the, the recovery of it. And I think there's a lot of science, actually. When I wrote my book, I wanted to look at, well, what are the current studies? What do they say about each of these things? What can they teach us? What do they show? And the science is really uh, pretty rigid, you know, when it comes to these things. It's not just one study found this. It's many, many studies found this, and they keep finding it. It must really be real. It must be really a concern. And with rumination, for example, one of the things they found is that when people fall into the habit of ruminating, they can really get stuck there. And then when you get stuck there, it can start to impact things like your ability to do problem solving. So there was one study that found that women who found a lump in their breast who had a tendency to ruminate waited on average two months longer than other women to make an appointment with their doctor after finding a lump in their breast. Why do you think that would be? I would, I would imagine that, that the, the woman who ruminates about that would be the quickest one to go do that. Ironically, no, because the rumination habit, what it makes you do is it makes you really focus on the worrying, on the stewing rather than the doing. You're not used yeah. to taking action because actually when you take action, when you figure it out and decide what to do is when you stop ruminating because you've kind of figured it out and then you move on. It's when you're ruminating, it means you're stuck. You're not taking action. You're not figuring it out. And then you're into the habit of just rolling it around in your head over and over again and not acting. And it's it's it's. I'm sorry, did I cut you off? Was no. there? A, uh, it sounds like there's a real overlap or a connection between ruminating and perfectionism. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, what are some tips for people that find themselves uh, stuck in in rumination? So a couple. One thing I suggest to people is they have to realize, well, first of all, that it's really bad for you, not just because you're going to have problems with problem solving, but people who ruminate are at much higher risk for cardiovascular disease because they're releasing all these stress hormones into their bodies. They're at higher risk for depression, eating disorders, alcoholism, because they're constantly focusing on the negative, on the bad. And the thing is, it's very addictive. It's very difficult to stop. Those things will pop into your head unbidden and then you just see that scene again or you think of that worry again and it's very difficult to stop. I suggest to people that it's a little bit like uh, when you stop smoking. I used to be a smoker many, many years ago. Uh, and when you stop, you know that you're going to get wicked cravings and you have to kind of white knuckle it through the cravings. And if, if you do, then in time, they'll come less frequently and they'll be less intense. The way you white knuckle it through cravings is the same way you kind of white knuckle it through rumination. You distract yourself as soon as possible. The minute that the worry begins, the minute the ruminative thought begins, that one that doesn't lead to new insights, but just as a replay, you immediately have to distract yourself with something that requires concentration. It can be a uh, puzzle, it can be a memory task, like trying to recall the, uh, the list of songs in, in, in a playlist or the order of books on your shelf or the order of grocery items in the market. Whatever it is that will really require concentration, a crossword, puzzle, Angry Birds, Scrabble. Whatever. I think Scrabble, Scrabble is the Scrabble best. Scrabble with friends is very good. Yeah. So, you know, those things. And once you do, usually two minutes of that kind of activity will be enough to make that uh, craving slash urge uh, pass. And then you go back to what you were doing. But you, it has to be that, that real zero tolerance of whenever that thought comes up, 
I'm going to distract myself because if you indulge it, then you're strengthening that link. You're making it more likely to reappear. I imagine too why that brings comfort to people who pray or meditate when uh, you know the the urge to drink or whatever comes up or to lash out at at somebody. Yes, and mindfulness meditation really is a practice of being able to have a thought and move it aside in some kind of way. So actually practicing doing that very thing, and people who do meditation are more likely to be more successful or make this less effortful, at least at the beginning. And would observing your mind fit into that category of, of dealing with the rumination by distancing yourself from your thought and saying, my thought is not me, I'm just watching this almost like a sporting event that I'm now detached from? If you have that skill. In other words, some people who are used to meditation can actually move move that thought at a more distant place and detach from it emotionally, not get activated. And you'll know the difference because if you can do that, then the emotional activation should be less. If you're doing that supposedly, but you're still charged up, you're not doing it successfully enough, and then you should do the other kind of distraction. How about getting on a crowded bus and pushing people around? Would that be a healthy distraction? Only if somebody then turns around and takes a swing at you because it really <laughs> needs to require your concentration and focus. What are what are some other uh, some other tips for uh, dealing with rumination? Well, one of them you mentioned actually, and that is that if you are ruminating, let's say about a specific scene, your your boss yelled at you in a meeting, and you know you keep seeing their angry faces, they were screaming at you, and that you know uh, thought event keeps replaying. Then one thing you can do is something you just suggested in a way. In other words, replay the scene, but when you start replaying it, zoom out and zoom out further so you can see yourself within the scene and then zoom out further as if you're an outside observer who happened to pass by and see it and replay it that way. When you are doing it in the third person perspective, when you are viewing yourself in the scene, because there are a lot of studies that show that when you do that, when you zoom out in that way, see yourself in the scene, in the scene from a distance, it um, is less activating, your blood pressure will rise less, it'll uh, go back to normal more quickly, um, and you're actually trying to uh, lay down a different kind of association to that scene than the one that you've had previously. And you'll get another angle on how your pants fit, which is, which is always nice. It's always good to get a, a good view of the outfit um, and see what needs to be changed. And, and the other thing that I would add to that is zoom out on the timeline. I do a, a thing uh, where I say, is this going to matter in five years? And almost always that makes whatever it is evaporates. Because I try to think to myself, what happened to me five years ago that is really mattering to me right now? I can't think of a single thing. Right. And why that's really important, that kind of thing, is because a lot of people, they feel, no, this is important that I indulge this thought. Now, if you ask them why, they'll actually struggle to come up with a good reason, because indeed, in five years, it won't matter. But it seems really important, because if it weren't, why would I have the urge to go through it so strongly? Well, because of the habit. That's what brooding does. You develop that habit, and that's why you have the urge, or because of, or because of childhood things that happen to you when you're in that habit. But exactly right. If you need to, at first, persuade yourself that, you know what, I should fight this one and make sure I don't fall into the pattern of brooding, then do that. Will it matter in five years? Probably not. I, just, I find that if I am going to brood, it's best to get a globe and stroke it while a cat's in my lap. I find that very comforting. 
the globe yo well, are, are you looking at any country <laughs> i'm looking at them all guy they're all going down they're all going down the globe and the cat wow. the first time i tasted a salted uh, caramel rice crispy treat i thought the person that invented this must have been stroking a globe when they came up with it with or without it, the cat though <laughs> with the cat okay. absolutely and a hairless cat <laughs> it is the most evil stroke of genius i've ever tasted i was like i took one bite and i went fuck you this is so good i'm gonna be addicted to these any other uh, tips for the ruminator? Just that it's going to be, you know, you really have to think of it as habit change. And like any other habit change, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be more laborious and effortful as you start. And if you can keep it up for enough time, the habit will uh, kick in and you won't need to make as many efforts to keep it up. So just be aware you're entering a tricky period, like somebody who stops smoking has to be aware, okay, this is going to be a little iffy for a short while, but it'll be worth it. Well, that's that's great advice, uh, Guy. I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, as I said, there there will be uh, five other installments coming up on uh, one on rejection, one on loneliness, one on failure, one on low self-esteem, and one on guilt. Uh, many thanks. And his book is called Emotional First Aid. Um, and I just want to plug um, that I am going to be speaking on March 25th, it's a Tuesday, at Lassen Community College. Uh, the uh, Lassen Aurora Network is hosting a community screening for a PBS documentary called A New State of Mind that I was uh, featured in, and I'm going to be speaking for a half hour at some point during the proceedings. Um, it's from 5.30 to 8.30 at Middleton Hall, and uh, Lassen, it's at Lassen Community College, which is on Highway 139 in Susanville, California. And um, RSVPs are appreciated but not required. And you can uh, call 530-257-3864 for reservations. And here's the real reason if anybody's going to show up. Complimentary food and beverages provided. You can't beat that. So, um, oh, and there's also an email address if you want to um, reserve uh, through email. It's, it's a long one, but I'll read it anyway. It's Lassen Aurora Network, and Lassen is spelled L-A-S-S-E-N. That's Lassen Aurora uh, Network, and Aurora is spelled A-U-R-O-R-A, uh, at frontiernet.net. Um, hey, Paul, how about you just put these fucking links up on the website? Oh, and he ends on a moment of pure jackassery. <laughs> <laughs> 